Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. When you go to fight a war, you, you have to fight it with the force you have, not the one you want. So Virginia really didn't have a force. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Patrick Hannum discussing the organizational troop strength of the state of Virginia. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Patrick Hannum, and he'll be discussing the troop strength and organization of the state of Virginia during the American Revolution. Patrick Hannum always grabs my attention when he writes articles for the Journal of the American Revolution. Because like many of our writers, he's actually a lifelong serviceman in the U.S. military. Uh, He's been a commander, he's served his country valiantly, and he brings an almost scientific, statistical, encyclopedic knowledge of troop strength into his analysis of the 18th century. We often tell stories of troop bravery and uh, valor. And we talk about a lot of things you just can't put on paper. But Patrick Hannum has an incredible ability to do that. So I encourage you to read his article. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Patrick Hannum. Patrick Hannum, welcome back. Well, it's great to be back, Brady. Remind us about your background. Well, um, I'm a recently retired um, federal employee after spending 45 years in the Department of Defense, uh, 29 years as an active duty Marine assault amphibian vehicle officer, and uh, 16 years as a professor at the uh, Joint Forces Staff College, part of National Defense University, where uh, I taught Phase Two Joint Professional Military Education, mm-hmm. principally for officers in the grades of uh, 04 Major Lieutenant Commander through 06, which would be uh, Colonel Captain. Uh, as directed by the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986. And uh, over the last uh, year or so, I've been very active with the uh, Norfolk chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution. I've been doing independent research and writing and uh, enjoy doing staff rides. And That's a broad summary for you. Patrick, what first drew your interest into this topic? Well, this was an interesting one. It kind of grew out of my research uh, I've been focusing on really the early years of the Revolution, um, 1775 and, and early 1776 here in Virginia, and I've come to the conclusion that it really can be uh, kind of uh, summed up as a, as a campaign, basically the campaign to uh, remove uh, the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, from, from power, uh, both political and military power, here in Virginia. And in, in doing that research, um, I, I identified you know, a number of en- engagements, mostly skirmishes, and then, of course, the Battle of Great Bridge is the big one. 
and then uh, in early 1776, the destruction of Norfolk. But it was always confusing, you know, what were the forces, what were the patriot forces, what did the government organize, you know, and who was there? And so that was one of the things that, that led to, to this particular uh, topic. And I was principally interested in the regular and um, minute companies that fought at the Battle of Great Bridge. And I've identified 11 companies, but they were not all regular companies. So in this article, I focused on what turned out to be the 23 regular companies that Virginia had created and were in existence uh, in December of 1775. What was the state of Virginia's forces at the start of the war? So that, it's, that's very interesting uh, because, you know, the, as they removed the, as the, the Whig government took over, the Patriot government took over Virginia, and they removed uh, Lord Dunmore from power, even before he had been removed, um, the convention met in Richmond, the second Virginia convention, and that's the, the one that's mo- known for Patrick Henry and his give me a liberty or give me death speech. But that second convention authorized independent uh, militia companies to organize one in each county. A number of those companies traveled to Williamsburg. Uh, Patrick Henry actually led a group, you know, that, that helped to, um, threatened the governor and and ultimately led to his uh, movement from Williamsburg onto naval vessels. And um, these these independent companies were basically beholding to their company commanders that that organized them. And that was okay to get the governor out, but not, not necessarily the structure that you would want to fight, you know, a larger scale operation. And the, the Whig government realized this. And the third convention, uh, Virginia Convention went ahead and authorized an actual three-tiered system and uh, basically three levels of readiness of units. The most ready were the 1st uh, and 2nd Virginia regiments. The next level of readiness would be the minute battalions, and those were volunteer units. And then the third level of readiness would be the traditional militia uh, organizations, company level at, at each county, multiple um, companies in each county. So um, as I worked through this, then I, I realized that there were some variances in the, the regular structure. So the, the broad structure, the broad, broad plan of the Third Virginia Convention in this three-tiered readiness system created 16 military districts. So these districts were grouping of counties, uh, really between two and five counties in each district. Uh, The two regular regiments consisted of 15 of those regular companies. Eight of those companies were formed into the First Virginia Regiment which Colonel Patrick Henry commanded, and seven of those companies went into the 2nd Virginia Regiment that Colonel William Woodford commanded. The 16th company was considered an independent company 
in the 16th district, and that was over on the eastern shore. So we had 16 regular companies, but 15 of them organized into two small regiments because a regiment at the time normally would have been uh, 10 companies. So these were seven and eight company regiments, just over 1,000 men in these two, two regiments. So that's, that's how it all came together. And the 16 districts then each had the responsibility to produce and recruit and train a minute battalion. So the one on the eastern shore stayed on the eastern shore. And then the other 15-minute battalions were to operate you know, in the western part of Virginia, west of the, the Chesapeake Bay, I'll, call, I'll say. So the primary threat, though, was Lord Dunmore here in the Tidewater area of Virginia. So those 15 companies of the, the two regiments, the first and the second, operated in the Tidewater, Virginia area, both on the peninsula and south of the James River. But there were the additional companies that identified to get to that total of 23. Patrick, your article is very neatly organized. How did you decide to organize these forces for presentation in the article itself? So the, the way I chose to organize it was with, with a graph and using some color codes. Um, one could easily, you know, put all that information into a narrative form, but it would have become very long and, and very detailed. What I opted to do was create that, that graphic showing each of the 23 companies and then listing some, some information about them. Um, of course, the counties where they were formed, who their commander was, the commissioning dates of those officers, a commander in sometimes subordinate officers we could identify as well. Uh, then if they were assigned to a regiment or if they operated as an independent company, uh, specified that. And then the last important piece of data I thought we needed was where, you know, where did they assemble? Where did they operate? So that's how I came up with the, uh, the basic headings to, to organize the, the information. And then it was evident that they actually operated in really five different theaters, uh, which was quite surprising for only 23 companies. Patrick, talk about the men that served on the eastern shore. So that is one area where there, there's not a lot of information about the eastern shore. So what I've been able to determine so far is that um, there, there was a real serious recruiting problem, specifically on the eastern shore, but in general, uh, there was a difficulty in building the minute companies. It did not appear to be a big issue in building the regular companies. They seemed to be well-recruited and, and well-manned and well-led. But over on the eastern shore, there seemed to be a problem with just building the, the basic units. Now, the, the one company uh, over on the eastern shore have not been able to determine who that company commander was, that regular company. So of the, the, the 23 companies authorized, that's the one hole uh, in, in the research right now. Is did they have a company commander? Who was it? Uh, when was he appointed? Those things aren't in any records that I can find to date. Um, and there's also later, or early in 1776, there's some indications that 
they were never able to recruit for their um, minute battalion. They were authorized a 680-man minute battalion, but there were several companies actually recruited, you know, west of the Chesapeake Bay for service there, and eventually they created a regular regiment to serve over on the eastern shore, the the, the 9th Regiment. So that's probably one of the, the, the biggest holes in the research right now, and I'd like to be able to try to fill that in in the future. But for for the other companies, though, um, the, the data is fairly complete. Um, the, the list of, of company commanders, and in many cases, some of the subordinate officers, especially for the 15 companies of the, the two regiments, we have a full accounting of uh, of the officers. And I'm starting to build on that information and work a database to create the names of the soldiers who served in each of those companies. So uh, that's that's a future uh, future project. But uh, I've identified around 160 uh, officers and men that served uh, during the Battle of Great Bridge in the uh, in the Second Regiment. So uh, that that data is coming together. What was going on in the West? What was the defensive situation there? So um, in, in the West, um, you, you obviously had you know, a very broad front. Uh, the Western Theater really ran from what's today, you know, modern Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, down the Ohio River, and then uh, south into what's now uh, really uh, western uh, or eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee, down to the Holston River area, really about a 500-mile front. The northern part of that front was really um, the, the political unit on the on the on that frontier would have been the you know the Native American tribes, principally the the Shawnee and and the Mingo, and then as you go further south into the Tennessee area, it, it was the Cherokee. So the, there was. Dunmore's War, Lord Dunmore's War, was was fought in 1774, and at the Treaty of Camp Charlotte in the fall of 1774, um, there was a tentative peace made with both the Shawnee and the Mingo. That had to be followed up on in the summer of 1775, and they had agreed to meet at Fort Pitt. It became politically challenging because at the same time, in the summer of 1775, Lord Lord Dunmore is being ousted as as the royal governor, and the Whig government's taking over here in Virginia. So the conventions have to now deal with that western frontier and that try to finalize that that peace treaty based on the tentative Articles of Peace that were established at the the, the, the treaty, treaty of Camp Charlotte. So uh, it's it's a different situation, obviously, on the Western frontier. You're not really fighting, a, you know, a European nation state as as you are with the British government in the East. You're fighting more or less a confederation and some independent Native American tribes on the Western frontier. So it's a very different structure. Uh, and again, there's there's also challenges with the colony of Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania claimed that area, which is now western Pennsylvania, uh, that area, the confluence of the uh, 
Nongahela and Ohio rivers, which is now Pittsburgh. And and so um, Pennsylvania sent some agents to negotiate with those Native American tribes as well. So they, they had to overcome those internal political challenges, and therefore they created these military units, these companies, to go ahead and man that region. Now, another part of this discussion in the West is that as a result of Don Moore's War, the fact that none of the, the troops were ever really paid for their service, the volunteer militia that served with Lord Dunmore and, and, uh, and, and spent their efforts there in the, in the fall of 1774, and early winter of 1774, defeating these native tribes, uh, they, the, the conventions had to come up with a method to pay them so they had to add some taxes and set up a standard system to pay the forces that fought there, then deactivate those companies that fought initially, and then activate these new companies for frontier defense. So it's a, it's a, a pretty complicated uh, political and, and, and military process that they went through during the summer, fall of, of 1775, to put these five independent companies out there on the western frontier. How did the state's strength uh, change throughout the war, from the beginning to the end? So, you know, as as the war started, you know, as with most wars, you know, you you always underestimate the the numbers of forces and the length of time you're going to need those forces for. So, these initial companies. Uh, these 23 companies were kind of a stopgap measure, and then as the situation deteriorated, um, the Virginia Con- Fourth Convention, Virginia Convention, realized that company level units or just the two regiments and 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 uh, volunteer type organizations like the uh, minute battalions were not going to be adequate to fight this conflict. So they created. Uh, Full strength or uh, 680 man, 10 company regiments. A total of nine of them were authorized in December of 1775. Most of those units didn't really get to the field, didn't impact things really until into 1776, really into March. By the time you see any of those uh, units, you know, being coming operational in in the field. So. Uh, from there, they went into the teens, the number of regular um, regiments in Virginia. There was obviously a problem in sustaining those numbers throughout the war with casualties. Um, you know, some units took you know very tremendous casualties. So um, the the challenge was then reorganizing those. So when you get to the end of the war, there's really a, a task organized. Uh, group of regiments that exists in Virginia. Um, it's very small. Many of the Virginia units were captured at Charleston in 1780, and uh, a lot of those men were, were later paroled, but uh, nothing like what they had early in the war. However, these early units and the success they had these smaller units, these company-sized units, and the success they had here in Virginia ultimately did lead to 
Dunmore being defeated and leaving Virginia, which then allowed Virginia to support the Continental Army in the early part of the war with multiple regiments. So even though these companies are not significant in terms of the numbers of folks they had in them, you know, they were significant in the strategic impact they had here in Virginia in defeating Lord Dunmore, driving him from the colony, because it doesn't really become a state until, you know, the Declaration of Independence time. So uh, those are kind of the the broad uh, overviews of why these companies and these smaller units of 1775 and early 1776 are very, very important. Now, we talked over on the West. um, They really kept the peace, really, for a couple years. So it wasn't really until 1777 when the British were able to incite the Native Americans to, uh, again, create a Western Front. So really from 1777 on, there's a Western Front that has to be fought by Virginia as well as supporting an Eastern Front. Patrick, this is very much an opinion question, but who do you think were the most effective leaders uh, in Virginia's ranks? Well, again, in, in the early part of, of the revolution here in Virginia, clearly William Woodford and his officers from the 2nd Virginia Regiment really stand out. But again, if you know, you look at how these units were recruited. They were recruited by, you know, at the company level. So these units were named for their company commanders. So again, in the in the research, um, I think it's important to realize that the the name of the company commander is tied to the co- company. So my estimate is the, the company commanders here, these 23, were, were very, very critical. You know, they were definitely patriots who stepped up right away. Again, remember in 1775, there's no United States. There's no Declaration of Independence. Um, that doesn't happen for a full year before these men stepped up and said, hey, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to fight and I'm going to recruit, you know, an entire company to come with me. So I think the company commanders need an awful lot of credit, these original company commanders, because they were obviously passionate and dedicated patriots. Again, the 2nd Regiment, you look at William Woodford and his officers. Um, He would go on, obviously, to become a general officer. He would be captured at uh, um, Charleston and uh, imprisoned by the British and it died in captivity. Um, his deputy was, was Charles Scott, who also became a, uh, uh, a general officer. Charles Scott was, uh, would later uh, become governor of Kentucky, and he would uh, command the uh, mounted Kentucky militia at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, uh, supporting the, the, the Legion of Anthony Wayne. So... There was some good field-grade senior leaders um, supervising these company commanders. But I'm working on a, an, another article, and that will address the 11 companies commanders that were at Great Bridge. Um, 
and that was a combination of the the second Virginia regiment officers and the the officers that were signed uh, from the Culpeper Minute Battalion. Um, for example, two of those officers in the second Virginia regiment would would end up um, serving as aides to George Washington. And the, the the 32 men that served as his aides de camp during the Revolution, two of them actually were company commanders uh, that were identified in this article, and I'll write a little bit more about it in the, in the next one when I talk about the 11 company commanders at Great Bridge. So um, I think the, the, the key here is the company commander, to answer your question. Who are the key leaders? Obviously, there were many others, but what we can identify right now is these company commanders who stepped forward and uh, and organized these units and led these men into combat. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, at, you know, when I look at that question, I think about what our former Secretary of Defense, most recently, not, not too far in the past here, Donald Rumsfeld, in 2003 said, when we uh, went into Iraq, um, he was asked a question about, you know, do you have the right force structure in one of his press conferences? And basically he said, when you go to fight a war, you, you have to fight it with the force you have, not the one you want. So Virginia really didn't have a force in 1775. They had to create a military force. Uh, there was definitely a shortage of weapons. So one of the things that came out in, in the research that I thought was particularly enlightening was the, the fact that over half of these units were riflemen. You know, and as the war progressed, you know, we went to a more conventional uh, approach with musket men rather than rifles. You know, rifles take a long time to load, probably about a minute to load a, a rifle because you have to drive that ball down into the rifling, you know, as opposed to just dropping a, uh, a, a ball in a smoothbore smooth musket. So what I thought was interesting was that, um, you know, over 50% of these companies were riflemen. But then when you, when you think, you step back and think, well, there were no public weapons to be, to be had. Uh, you know, Dunmore damaged some of the weapons and took the locks off the, in the, uh, uh, in his departure from the colonial capital and, and the armory there in, in Williamsburg. So uh, they had a difficult time getting public weapons. So the fact that folks on the western frontier, you know, what, what was then called the backcountry, uh, many of them had their own weapons for, for hunting and, and their own personal defense, uh, it made sense that those folks came with their own personal weapons. So that was one thing. And the, the other thing that struck me in, in analyzing this was that over 40% of the units came from the, the extreme western portion of Virginia. So when you look at the demographics of Virginia in 1775, and you look at the political structure of Virginia, there were 62 counties in Virginia that sent representatives to the conventions and, of course, before that, you know, to, to um, Williamsburg 
to sit in, in a representative government. Um, so Virginia had a very, what you call, balanced population across uh, all the way into the West. Uh, there were no large cities in Virginia. Uh, Norfolk was the only large city, probably about 62 to 6,500 people. Um, and, of course, as a result of this early campaign, it was destroyed so that the British couldn't use it as a base of operations for their fleet to operate here in the Chesapeake Bay and to have a secure port. So uh, when you think about all those factors, you think later in the Revolution, uh, the, the British came back to Virginia, raided several times, but it really wasn't until 1781 that they came back in force. And that was uh, with Benedict Arnold, uh, reinforced by William Phillips, and then Charles Cornwallis came up. And that all ends at Yorktown. So when you think about this state of Virginia, initially the colony of Virginia, the actions here in 1775 and 76 are very critical because they drive the British out. It allows Virginia to support the Continental Army, provide supplies and resources to the Patriot cause, and allows for shipping down through the, the Chesapeake Bay. And that doesn't really get fully interdicted until later in the war. So Virginia has a very important role. Um, most people recognize the, you know, the, the political and, and intellectual leadership out of Virginia as being critical to the American Revolution. But the military the contributions are, are, are very significant. And so I think that's what understanding I come to from, from studying uh, this, this early portion of the Revolution, that it's really, really critical uh, for the success of the revolution, for Virginia to be successful. And uh, they created just enough, and they had the right leaders and the dedicated people, and they figured out how to get it done. So that's, uh, that's what I draw from it, Brady. Patrick Hannum, thanks again as always. Thank you, Brady. Take care. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.